0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center on another bright and sunny day in California. This past Tuesday, I found myself giving a presentation to the UCLA Buddhist Club on the four immeasurables, and afterwards we had questions and answers. So what you're about to hear is that presentation on the four immeasurables to the UCLA Buddhist Club. So does anybody know what the four immeasurables are? Okay. <laughs> there we well, this will be a good talk then. Okay. The four immeasurables are loving kindness, compassion. Sympathetic joy, equanimity. They are also known as the four Brahma-Vihara, abodes of the gods. Theravada, Brahma-Vihara. Mahayana, the four immeasurables. So what I'd like to do is just talk about each one briefly and, and see how they sort of interconnect and work to create this model of an enlightened person sometimes people ask me how can you tell if someone's enlightened what are the characteristics what are the signs of enlightenment and I like to use the four immeasurables as characteristics of an enlightened person so the first characteristic would be loving-kindness now to put this in the proper context I feel Loving-kindness is an intention. It's a mind state. It's the reason behind our speech. It's the reason behind our activity. But it's not the speech and activity themselves. It's the intention behind them. So as I've talked about before, but I'll just uh, visit it again, um, loving-kindness is a really interesting concept in Buddhism because it really defines how the Buddha loved everyone and expressed his intimacy to everyone now what I mean by that is that the Buddha had become celibate by that time he was enlightened and I personally never looked at the Buddha as loving people Because he was a skinny guy. He only had one meal a day. He came from a warrior caste. He had done some extreme ascetic practices and practices of renunciation, which for most of us would just be very difficult. And somehow made it out the other side and got enlightened, achieved nirvana. So it was difficult for me to even imagine how he would love people. If you approached him, would you feel love from him? I thought to myself, probably not. But when you see how Jesus is depicted in Scripture or on TV, he always seems to love everybody. And he always puts his arm around people and, and he shares their suffering with them. And he seems to know at a glance what needs to be said or what needs to be done. And I just never pictured the Buddha as sticking his arm around Ananda and saying, How you doing? You know? He just didn't seem like that kind of guy. So I had to figure out and define what love was in the context of loving kindness. So I came to the conclusion that love was the unconditional acceptance of the person being loved. A person who is in love with another human being accepts that person exactly the way they are, without wanting or needing to change them. Now, when I think back to the Buddha, I could see him doing that. I could see him having a profound acceptance of the way people were. And if they needed to change or wanted to change, I can see him offering instruction and encouragement. But I don't see him as demanding they change or become one of his followers. And it doesn't seem to come out that way in the suttas. So where does the kindness come in? Well, it seems to me that if someone is in love with a human being in that way, they are always kind to them. Now, that should be the true test, I think, of any relationship. The girl you go out with or the guy you go out with, are they always kind to you? Or sometimes are they just like little rascals and give you a hard time? And make your life even worse. And you start to wonder, why am I with this person? I'm better off without them. So in this model, loving kindness would be the possibility of accepting that person exactly the way they are. And then expressing that love or acceptance through kindness. But now it hasn't manifested in a physical or vocal form yet. It's at an intentional level. So the second Brahma-vihara, or immeasurable, would be compassion. This I define as the activity of loving-kindness. So we have loving-kindness as a mental state, and when loving-kindness manifests in the world, it manifests as compassion. Now, there are a lot of people that call themselves compassionate, but will not get off their duff to go out and help anybody. They just think of themselves as compassionate. But I'm saying, in this model, that you really need to do something to have compassion manifest in the world. And I know the Buddhist club went out and worked on a house and raked a yard, something like that. That was compassionate activity. Now, whether the intention behind that was loving-kindness, that's another question. But the activity itself manifested in a compassionate way because it reduced suffering. And that would be the test, wouldn't it, of our compassion. Does it reduce the ills of the world? Does it reduce suffering? Or does it increase suffering? And if it increases suffering in any way, it wouldn't be compassionate activity based in loving-kindness. The third aspect, or the third immeasurable, is sympathetic joy. This, for me, has always been the hardest one. I have a lot of difficulty with this because I am a rather competitive person. And if someone is doing better than I am, it's really hard for me to be happy for them. And if I just happen to be watching the uh, lottery and someone wins a million dollars, it's really difficult for me to be on their team going, I am so glad you just won a million dollars. (laughs) Because I'm thinking, what could I do with a million dollars? I could really spend it well. They're just going to blow it. They'll be broke in five years. In debt, too. That isn't sympathetic joy. <laughs> That's the opposite. So, if we truly have sympathetic joy, when someone is successful, we feel their success as if it's our own. Yes. Did I hear it? Yes. Yes. Oh, 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 you said bless you. Okay. Okay. See, it threw me off. uh, off. Blessings threw me off. Okay. So, if someone succeeds, if someone wins, it's your success. You've won. That's what sympathetic joy means. If someone is happy, it's your happiness. You're happy because they're happy. Now, how many times have you been around people who are happy, and you feel sort of left out because you haven't been happy in two days. (laughs) You know? That's not sympathetic joy. This is a very difficult level of spiritual practice. It takes many lifetimes to honestly, I think, be happy when others are happy. To look at their success as your success. Very difficult. Now finally, the last immeasurable, the last brahmavihara Vihara, is equanimity. Perfect balance of mind. Having no preferences. Choiceless awareness. Not being attached. Not being repulsed. Being in the middle at all times. How often does our mind find that place? How many times haven't we had a preference? Every time I look at something, I think that's good or that's not so good. Or that's really good or that stinks. But I rarely look at anything and have no criticism or preference. I, My mind works with it being good or bad. And if it's neutral... My mind often overlooks it. It goes on to the next thing. I don't see things other than things that are good or bad. And I suppose that's just the way the mind works because our mind is designed to keep us alive. It's designed to always sort of pull us in the direction of what's good as far as we're concerned. And our mind sort of takes us away from the stuff that makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Like giving a presentation. But rarely does our mind have anything to say about something that is neutral. So this equanimity is profound in the sense that we can still function as a human being and not have any preferences, not have any desire not have any craving, not have any repulsion. We can still eat, but now, rather than eating because it looks good, smells good, and tastes good, we're eating because we need to in order to stay alive and practice the Dharma. Whole different mindset. When that is your mindset, you can be the Buddha and go and receive alms, or receive food and not show preference. Now one of the uh, experiences I had when I visited uh, Abiyagiri, a forest monastery in Northern California, was being able to eat with the monks. And I had my own little begging bowl. We didn't have to beg. We had lay people there who had cooked food and brought food and they just filled our bowls for us. And then we sat down and we looked at the bowl and, and and they had brought chocolate cake that day, you know. And, and it was right next to the salad with the dressing on it. <laughs> and I really didn't want my chocolate cake to be in the salad because I wanted to taste it. I wanted to, and so I got the spoon and I sort of like pushed it around the outer rim of the bowl so it wouldn't keep going into the salad, but it kept going into the salad. And I realized how many preferences I have when I eat. I sometimes like to eat things separately so I can taste each thing. But when I looked in this bowl, it was almost like looking into my stomach. Because this is how it would end up. All sort of mixed together. Not really tasting any, any way at all. So why was I so concerned about that chocolate cake and the salad dressing? Because I had a preference. I had a desire. I had a craving. Could I ever come to the place where that wasn't a problem? Could I come to a place of equanimity? Could I come to a place of acceptance with the way things are, rather than the way I want things to be? This practice that we choose, um, also known as the Dharma, is designed to allow us to live in the abodes of the gods to only have the intention of loving kindness to only have the activity of compassion to only find happiness in the happiness of others to only find success when others are successful and last but not least to have a perfectly balanced mind with no attachment and no aversion so i would say those four characteristics would describe one who is enlightened, one who has achieved nirvana. Question? Uh, this is a little off the subject, but uh, does Buddhism talk at all about the origin of suffering? Like it says, so you say that, you know, human beings are born and we all, we're all suffering and the goal is to, you know, to be the potential to be perfect to just eliminate all that suffering. But does it talk like from a uh, philosophical standpoint about why we're all born suffering? To yeah, it does. It goes into great detail. Because, see, that's the first part of the, of the problem. We have to uh, really explain to people where suffering came from and why they're still suffering. Because a lot of people don't know they're suffering. So our job, initially, if someone doesn't know they're suffering, is to say, you're really suffering. <laughs> and this is why. So, we're born... And because we're born, we get sick, we get old, we die. Because we're born, we have attachment to things and people and places. And those things and people and places will always change. So we're disappointed and angry when they do. Because we're born, we find we don't like some people and don't like some places and are in those places and around those people, whether we want to be or not. Because we're born, we don't see clearly what life's all about. We see the permanent, we see the impermanent as being permanent. We see the beautiful as being ugly, and the ugly as being beautiful. Our our self, our ego, our personality, deciphers this reality for us, but it does it based on ignorance. Not based on clarity. And so when we see a chair, or a car, or a motorcycle, we simply see a concept in our head. We don't really see the car, or the person, or the motorcycle, because uh, that would simply be sight, or sound, or smell, or taste, or touch, or mind. That's what a motorcycle is. Until it gets connected to ourself, our ego, our personality. And then we weave the tale of the motorcycle. 1984, Honda Superhawk. Wow, spoked wheels. You know? Most cool. Doesn't really have anything at all to do with sight sound, right? It's just simply the story of the motorcycle that our ego has so wonderfully written for us. And we attach to that. So we suffer a lot because we don't interpret reality exactly the way it is. And this this practice that we've decided to do uh, allows us to see things more clearly. And when we see things more clearly, we see less reasons to be attached to them. Because if something's always in a constant state of flux, what can you attach to? If that constant state of flux always leads to unsatisfactoriness, why get involved with it? If, in fact, we don't have a self in any real sense, it's simply a process and never an event, who is it that wants to attach to that thing that doesn't exist in the way we think it does? Who's the one? And you see this profound sense of equanimity or detachment arising out of clarity and wisdom and compassion rather than delusion and ignorance. It's, it's, a, it's a hard sell for a lot of people. But eventually, it just makes perfect sense. You know, if you're 75, 80 to, you know, years old, and your kidneys failed, and you have gout, and your hair fell out, and your teeth don't work, you know, somebody says life's really terrible, you go, yeah, you know, sure is. <laughs> and then we'd say, but, but we can do something about it. We don't have to suffer. So, suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. So, in a very real sense, what Buddhists, the Buddhist path is doing for us, it's allowing us to accept things exactly the way they are without needing to change them. And when that occurs, we don't suffer. But do we exist? I, I guess I'm having a hard time wrapping my ra- mind around it, but nirvana. Do you just exist past? And we don't. I mean, I guess I'm not sure how. And I'm thinking in terms of like birth and death. That's I'm born and then I die and then I said, or maybe I'm reincarnated. But Nirvana, you go past that cycle. You go past that cycle. You leave the cycle behind. The big circle. The chain is broken. Where do you go? Well, that's the big question, you know. And it's it's really hard to answer that because the Buddha didn't answer it, and I haven't achieved Nirvana yet, so. I would think it might be something like uh, a place that we can't even imagine because none of our sense doors would work there. Mm. You know, and I've spoken about this before, but every sense door we have uh, is attuned to change. It doesn't work if it doesn't change. So, for instance, sound requires silence. So there's a pattern, there's a vibratory nature of sound and silence, sound and silence our eardrum vibrates because of the sound, silence, sound, silence. And that creates sound. The words, you know, the concept of sound. Okay. So if it's unchanging and unborn and not with a vibratory nature, then we couldn't hear it. You know? So nirvana is a place that doesn't change. Nirvana is a place that was not created. And everything in this world of ours is here because of creation. Now, there's divine, you know, uh, creation. There's intelligent creation. There's the flying spaghetti monster creation. (laughs) You know, there are different ways of looking at creation. But everything here is here because of creation. Now, everything in nirvana is there because it's unborn. So even psychologically, you know, even if we try to intellectualize what that might be, like we've never ever had an experience that would even come close to that. And because we haven't had an experience because it's it's something our mind can't think about because there's no way for it to even imagine in the same way the fish can't imagine the turtle as it leaves the pond in our we have a koi pond in back of our center, and there's two turtles in there, and about 50 fish. And on those sunny days, the turtles will crawl out and sit on a rock and sun themselves. And I oftentimes just watch the fish, I'm getting old, watch the fish just sort of swim around, and thinking to myself, I wonder what the fish think about those turtles, you know? Because those turtles are out there giving some, some sun and drying off. The fish can't do that. They'd be dead. So the turtles, of course, are the rulers of the pond. Because they get to leave. You see, the fish never do. I thought that was interesting. But I also saw that the two environments, you know, outside in the pond and the pond itself aren't compatible. That's why a turtle is really unique. It can actually exist in both. So we can exist in both as well. But we don't know what the other one is yet. So when I want to find out about nirvana, what I like to do is I like to read the suttas, and I like to read what the Buddha did, because here's a guy that achieved nirvana. So it's going to give me a good indication of what happens. Was the Buddha like this vegetable guy, just living in the present moment with no past or future? No, he seemed to be aware of past and future, and he didn't seem to be a vegetable at all. He seemed to have a lot to say about stuff, seemed to be very, very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable. Seemed though, which I found really interesting, seemed to be locked into time and space. You know, he didn't seem to have much vision into the future. He couldn't have imagined, I don't think, 2006. You know? So when he talked, he talked pretty much about what was happening in India and the caste system, and, you know, and the rites and rituals that the Brahmins did, and sacrifice was bad, and, uh, you know, women don't have any rights, but they can achieve nirvana, so we'll make one and none. And, you know, I don't think he could even envision, you know, outside his time and place very well. So he wasn't omniscient in the way that some people think he might be. I don't think, for my readings of the early Buddhist texts, I have to qualify that. But he seemed to get most of his knowledge from his own experience, from looking inward, not outward. He had an empirical perspective. He could understand how his mind and body worked in the context of the environment he lived in. And so when he's talking, he's often talking about the world, but not the world as we think of it. He's talking about the world that exists inside. You know? And I, th- I like that idea because it seems to me the spiritual path encourages us at some point to start looking inward. And now the Buddha has given us roadmaps on how to do that. And if you've ever cracked open one of the Abhidharma texts, the Buddhist psychology, wow, there's 54 mind states to do this and there's 54 mind states to do that and this sensation arises when that happens. and It's pretty it's pretty uh, intimidating to start to investigate the inside world. And I talked about this past Saturday, um, about the, the problem with looking at Buddhism as not being very good at changing the world. And I don't think the Buddha intended his practices to change the world. I think the practice of Buddhism is to change us. And then as we change, we see the world differently. So if we want to have a perfect world to live in, it seems to me we need to be perfect first. Because if we try to make the world perfect first, I think we're doomed to failure because our human consciousness is based and rooted in ignorance and delusion. So we're never going to make this world perfect by creating a system. Every system I'm aware of is flawed. But if we... Create perfection within ourselves, and we perceive the world through that perfection. Wow, how cool would that be? well Of course, some of our systems are run by you know, greed, and <laughs> the current regime. You know, yeah, <laughs> people have to the perfect themselves first before they can run a country. You would hope that would be the case. Very rare that happens. I think Tibet was a good example with the Dalai Lama, yeah. but then he had to leave. So I know. There you go. There you go. There you go, so the systems are always going to be flawed, you know um, but does that mean that we don't you know march against the war, that we don't help homeless people, that we don't find shelter for people that you know have no place? No, it doesn't mean that at all, but we're not doing it because we want to change the world. It seems to me we're doing that because we want people to suffer less. And we join the peace march because we know if the world has peace, people will suffer less. If the world has war, people will suffer more. So from a Buddhist perspective, it really seems to me, after reflecting on it, that we don't change the world to make the world better. We change the world so people will suffer less. And sometimes we're successful at reducing suffering. But we're never going to be able to change, to end all the suffering by changing the world. Eventually, the person's going to have to change himself. Yes. Did I simulate a question? Yes. Good. How does that fit in with equanimity? Because if you, I mean, you have to have a preference of not suffering over suffering. Yeah. So then that's a preference. It would seem like that, but I think more to the point, it would be not your suffering, but their suffering. You have perfect equanimity about your own suffering. You, because now you don't suffer anymore. But in the story of the Buddha, after 49 days, after he achieved nirvana, and 49 days later, he looked back into the world and he saw all the sentient beings suffering because of birth and death and sickness and old age and attachment and aversion. And for 45 years, he worked in the world morning, noon, and night, to help others end their suffering. He had cons- done that for himself already. So I think he had great equanimity, perfect equanimity about himself. But he, he saw something in the people that were suffering that led him back into the world. He didn't hide from the world. And we were talking earlier about that, about the spiritual path, and how sometimes it seems, if only I could just leave the world... For a couple of years, you know, live in a small community, isolated from all the troubles and, you know, uh, and distractions of the world. I could really do a spiritual practice. I could really get it going. I might have a shot at enlightenment, you know. <laughs> but, but basically, if you look at what the Buddha did, you know, he was a householder uh, up until the age of 29. So he did a lot of stuff before 29. He took six years off. Those were the six years of his meditation practice his renunciation practice his ascetic practices he got it he did it and then for forty five years he helped others do it so when I look at that i it's a really good model so I guess a lot of us perhaps when we you know we were born and we are living a a world in a uh, or living a life in the world of flash and trash and we found it didn't really bring us permanent or ultimate happiness, and we found our spirituality. And then we had that initial surge of enthusiasm. Wow, I can hardly wait to go on a retreat, and I can, I've got 12 books I need to read, and isn't this so cool? And, and I need to find somebody to talk to this about, you know, and you can't find anybody who's as excited as you are, who wants to talk about religion all the time. So you lose a couple friends, and your relatives never call you. You know, and then... Finally, that sort of enthusiasm, that wave of enthusiasm sort of settles a bit, and you get this sort of methodical practice now every day, getting up at the same time, lighting incense. It's so cool. You've really got it in the groove, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and then you sort of go back into the world, but you're a bit different. You're doing the same stuff you did before, basically, but you're doing it in a different way. So I think it sort of works like that. I think from a realistic perspective, it sort of works like that that you have equanimity, you you can go in where others are suffering and not have to suffer. So you're much more effective at helping them. If you felt their suffering in the way they did, you might be overwhelmed with it. And when I look at some of these volunteers, you know, that go into, you know, the Hurricane Katrina, you know, area, and see the carnage, and see the just the, the houses and the impossible task ahead and it's going to be years until it ever comes back if it ever does. And yet, some of those volunteers just get up every day and go out and do the work. And then they go to sleep and they get up the next day and go out and do the work. Great sense of equanimity. Profound acceptance. you know. And in a way, they're more involved in the process than the goal. They're more involved in the daily tasks necessary to bring about um, a solution to all the suffering than the goal itself. And I found that in my own spiritual practice that it, I, the focus on the goals started to fall away and it became more on a focus of what am I doing today? How am I practicing today? What book do I need to read? What meditation? How much do I need to meditate? What am I going to talk about? What do I need to do today? And this future is just sort of takes care of itself, which is cool. Did that answer your question, sort of? Yeah. Cool. is um, the buddha the only like i guess recognized person who achieved nirvana no most of the arahants uh achieved nirvana too he had uh, Shariputra and ananda ananda took a long time mogalana <laughs> you know they had uh a lot of the most of the people that followed the buddha achieved nirvana cuz he had the teacher right there you know so we're removed from the Buddha by generations, you know, thousands of years. There, um, Jesus Do Jesus achieve nirvana? What's that? Would um, Buddhism consider Jesus to achieve nirvana? No. But uh, because um, it's just totally different. And the Buddha never met Jesus because it was a different time. But I, I would say no. We would really get in a lot of trouble if we said that Jesus had achieved nirvana. I don't know many Christians that would agree with us, or Buddhists. He definitely, have a lot of compassion. Yes, and loving kindness, and probably sympathetic joy as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he probably was had all that stuff happening. But I think as Buddhists, we really need to be careful when we start to overlay our models on another religion, you know, and say, ah, you know, Mohammed was enlightened, or you know, and, and just uh, because it, it, they have. Literally a different practice and a different goal. We're the only ones that I know of that have this goal. You know, even the Brahmin tradition that came out of, uh, that Buddhism came out of, didn't have the goal of nirvana. Had the goal of, you know, taking that piece of the soul back to the mothership. That union again, you know. So we're really unique in the world as far as our practice and what we're trying to attain. And I think the way we approach the world, too, is unique. You know, and, uh, uh, so uh, we need to be clear and, and not try to impose or see too many similarities in other traditions because I think that's just our ignorance and delusion and, uh, and I see a lot of people get confused about their path then. and then they can't practice any path very well because they've combined three or four paths into one and created their own religion Well, that's it. That was my talk to the UCLA Buddhist Club on the four immeasurables. I hope you found it interesting, and I hope you found it useful. If you'd like to learn more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A.info. If you'd like to email me, my address is kusala at urbandharma.org. So until the next time, until the next podcast, Be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.